Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in true crime. And today, uh, interesting episode. I'm already getting a fair amount of hate mail about it, and I will get into why in a moment. Look at this. The COE is bounced in. COE, bugs. How can we help? She bounced out. Ted Rowland said to me right before going on air, Bugs runs this show. She runs my life. She runs this show. There's no doubt about it. But uh, this is going to be a weird one because I've got a head cold, everyone. It's finally caught up to me. My three kids sick for three weeks in a row with different ailments has finally gotten to me. Uh, Two decades after Scott Peterson was sentenced to death for the murder of his pregnant wife, Lacey, in a very high-profile trial, now the Los Angeles Innocent Project said uh, last week that it had taken up his case. The development marks a significant breakthrough for the 51-year-old Scott Peterson, who has long maintained his innocence and claimed all along that he received an unfair trial. Now, these might look like two any best guess to you, but think otherwise. These two know this case better than pretty much anyone out there. Laura Ingle. She's currently a crime reporter for News Nation based in New York City. Uh, Before that, she worked as a correspondent for Fox News for 20 years. She began her career in radio, working for the powerhouse KFI in Los Angeles. She made her name during the Scott Peterson case, and that is why she is here tonight, in addition to the fact that I just like her and she's a cool person and a great reporter. Now, before joining Court TV, Ted Rollins worked for over 20 years they both look too young to have worked this long. But Ted Rollins worked for a cor- as a correspondent for CNN and ABC News, where he covered some of the most uh, famous and infamous trials in history, uh, including O.J. Simpson, Michael Jackson, Jody Arias, Scott Peterson, Robert Blake, Phil Spector. The list goes on. And of course, now he is working uh, for Court TV. Very uh, quick reminder that we do have a new, I'm looking for it, a new Best Trials channel. It is right here. Uh, we are airing the Michelle Traconis trial, gavel to gavel on this channel. And uh, of course, you all know the most, most important story I've ever told right here, the QR code for my book. Uh, Carmen and I have decided upon a uh, person to help us uh, get the word out. So we'll be... Uh, getting cranking on all this uh, in the very near future, along with our publisher. So uh, excited about that. And uh, please, if you have it, it is available for uh, pre-orders. Just some very quick background, then we'll jump back in. So we have to go all the way back to Christmas Eve 2002. Uh, There's a frantic call from Scott Peterson. He had just gotten back from a fishing trip, and uh, he calls uh, Modesto Police And he says, I got back from this trip in uh, Berkeley, that is Northern California, and he finds his wife, Lacey, nearly eight months pregnant with her son, Connor. She was gone. She was out of the house. Uh, This case, I saw someone say, I think it was Rula, she'd never heard of this case, which means she's under a certain age, because if you're over a certain age, there's no way you would not have heard of this uh, massive, massive case back in the early 2000s. Uh, But of course, uh, his 27-year-old missing wife and child, it captivated the nation, and uh, it stretched on for days. People had one prime suspect. That was Scott Peterson. Without further ado, Laura Ingle, take us back in a time capsule. 2002, 
you're sort of a cub reporter. Where are you? Uh, how do you first get wind of this story breaking? Uh, I was down in Los Angeles and I was working for KFI, as you mentioned. Before that, I was working at KFBK in Sacramento News Radio, my hometown. Sacramento and Modesto are very close to each other and you can get there in an hour and change and depending on how fa fast you drive. Um, but I was down in Los Angeles when I heard about this. And at the time, my best friend was pregnant and also had a big, bright smile. And so when I saw the images of Lacey Peterson on TV, I went to my news director and I I said, we have to go cover this story. There's a missing woman and I'm from Sacramento. And he said, look, you only want to go cover the story because you're from Sacramento and this is going to go away and they'll find her or, you know, they'll handle it. And I said, no, I think this is, there's something more uh, to this that we need to look at. And so I talked him into letting me go up to Modesto where I camped out like many others in front of the Peterson's home on Covina Avenue in Modesto. And just one quick correction, Scott Peterson, called, it was Ron Gransky, the stepfather, who called the police. Uh, Scott, and that's one of the things a lot of people covering this case uh, have always wondered about, and people watching, it wasn't Scott Peterson who frantically called the police saying my wife is missing. He called Lacey's mom on Christmas okay. Eve he came home and saw that she wasn't there and did and said she's missing and and that word right away sunk the stomach of Sharon Rocha and she has said repeatedly you know when what do you mean she's missing it's not something you would say if i came home and my husband wasn't here and i'd been out for the day i would call around and say hey have you seen Kenny and I would look around for him, but I wouldn't say he's missing. And that really struck that was kind of the first volley that something was wrong that day. Wow. And and how long subsequently were you up there, for, at least for the first bit of this? Were you up there for like weeks on end? I was up there for weeks on end. And then eventually I moved to Redwood City. Once he went to trial, I got an apartment in Redwood City and I actually physically moved there to be there every day. Wow. Ted Rowland, same thing. I just found out. I thought you were from California, but you're from uh, Madison, Wisconsin, a home of the uh, famous university there, uh, University of Wisconsin. The yeah, the Badgers. So uh, how did you get involved in this case? And now it's 20 something odd years later. Well, I was a local reporter in the San Francisco Bay Area, and it was December 26th, and there's no news the day after Christmas. And Modesto is outside of our coverage area, but we get this facts back in the day, you know, the facts, the flyer, missing person, and um, it's a no-brainer to go check it out. She's pregnant, she's missing, she's, you know, about 45 minutes, hour away. And so we, we go down there, and I'm working morning. So I get there early in the morning, the 26th, and just kind of work off the flyer. Then I go meet Scott Peterson for the first time, after seven o'clock, uh, we uh, knock on his door, he answers. And at that moment, my photographer and I are like, ooh, this guy's guilty because he acts so strange, so different than anyone we, uh, you know, a person in that position would act. He doesn't, he, he's like, no cameras, no cameras, doesn't want to talk to us, um, doesn't want anything. He just says, here's a flyer. And we like, oh, already got a flyer. It shuts the door on us. And that was the beginning for me and my photographer and my uh, station KTVU at the time, because almost instantly, you know, the overnight ratings ticked up with this beautiful pregnant woman missing. Where is she? And uh, it's the holidays and there's so much empathy there that um, we were there nonstop 
for years, and still to this day, talking about Scott Peterson. Well, and by the way, it wouldn't be STS without a dog barking. Uh, we tried working on Laura Ingalls' uh, notifications there, but they're dinging, and so just bear with us. Um, we're not all tech savvy. I would never figure that out myself. But um, let me ask you this: when you, when you, so when you finally uh, knocked on that door and Scott answered, how far after the disappearance was made public was this that you actually met him, Ted? So she disappeared the 24th, word went out in Modesto the 25th. We were there the morning of the 26th, wow. uh, the day after Christmas. So the, by that time, Modesto was looking, and uh, the Bay Area, again, a little uh, a little bit outside, um, the word got to the in, in to the to the press up in the Bay Area the 25th, but nobody really did anything until that day after Christmas. And when you say... Ooh, he was guilty. He just was acting so weird. In what way? Like, how did? What made like, you think that? Just you know, you've been out in the field and dealt with people. There was something about the guy that just—he was so different than you would think a husband would be with his pregnant wife missing. It was not rude, but very businesslike, and had he wanted nothing to do with us. And that's just so different. Usually, it's. They're distraught. They're so emotional. They don't know what to do, but they definitely want the word out. Please help us find her. None of that from Scott in the early days. And uh, Laura Ingalls. So, of course, I was getting a uh, fair amount of messages. Why are you doing this show? Why are you giving uh, them a platform? You know, the L.A. Innocence Project and Scott Peterson. Should we not be doing the show? Is this an open and shut case in your opinion? He's guilty and there's no reason to be talking about it. I think that anything that has to do with Scott Peterson, people want to talk about. And I have also seen those messages as well. And here's what I will say. The L.A. Innocence Project put out this multi-page document and a, a court filing asking for the testing and retesting of evidence that they feel their attorneys who have now taken on Scott's case, they feel is relevant to look at. So because of that, as reporters and show hosts, we are talking about it because something is happening. This is not a random, let's start talking about this case again. There's actually a legitimate movement going on. And for that matter, there is a legitimate new piece of information, and, and correct me, Ted, but I've been talking to investigators and other people who covered this case. None of us have ever heard about an orange van that was burned out in an alley uh, between Thatcher and Empire, a mile away from Scott and Lacey Peterson's home in Modesto. There was a report of a van in front of, uh, across the street from Scott and Lacey's home around the time that she vanished that the Petersons have always maintained was, con was connected to a burglary that had something to do with her disappearance. That van, police believe, was tracked down. A guy named Donnie had this brown, white, or tan van, and it was checked out head to toe, uh, bumper to bumper, and was sent to the Department of Justice. Those people were cleared. The burglars were interviewed, polygraphed, and cleared. But still, the fact that the Los Angeles Innocence Project, which is different than the national version of that, and a lot of people have confused that over the last few days, and it's Laura, really, how really- Laura, so? how so? How are they different? They're just a different entity. They're not the national organization. They are, I don't even believe we've been trying to get an answer out of them. We have been repeatedly emailing them asking for further clarification. Um, it's, is it a chapter of the national 
version, I, it doesn't seem clear. It's just, it's another entity and it's, it's an organization that's been around from what we have been told two years. So it's a relatively new uh, group of attorneys, but the Innocence Project, just the name alone, it's a group of people who believe that there's something there, enough to put this out there into the world to say that this case deserves a second check. Look, I'm, I'm saying these words to you as just last week, just last Tuesday, I was in Riverhead on Long Island talking about how the advancements in DNA technology has led to more discovery about the Long Island serial killer suspect. After all these years, decades of years and years of, of looking for somebody they could tie the case to, they were able to do it through DNA technology. Could the same hold true in reverse? Could, could new DNA technology possibly give a second fresh set of eyes to something that the LA Innocence Project feels is worthy of being tested? Maybe, we won't know until that happens. And uh, we're going to dig more into this other van, this orange van that was uh, burned with a mattress inside, apparently with some blood and DNA on it. Uh, Avalia Kiel, I'm not going to pull it up, but she says, Ted Rollins, remember your amazing coverage uh, from Annie Kay here to Ted. If he's innocent, how can all of Scott's guilty post behavior be explained away he did dye his hair that infamous blonde ran off to mexico or at least tried to get there i don't remember if he actually made it calling his mistress uh amber uh fry during uh all of this i'm gonna pull up a photo of her this is amber fry and scott if you guys remember her what about all these uh you know these uh behaviors uh post disappearance that he, he tries to take off well he was uh found guilty and sentenced to death row. So yeah, they're a huge part of the equation. And um, for some reason, the true crime community hates Scott Peterson so much that they don't want to listen another word about it. I'm not going to tune into this. It's a, it's insane, the hatred and, and, and the lack of like, all right, well, let's listen to all of it. And if you do, and Laura and I sat through the entire trial, there are some question marks that you're thinking, wow, how did he do this? Rick DeStasso, the prosecutor, in his closing argument said, we don't know how he did it, um, but we're pretty, we, we know he did it. And jurors at the end, that's their feeling. And that's, and I get it. If I was on that jury, I would have found him guilty. However, it's still a case that if you plow all the way into it, if you look at it and you look, start asking questions of, well, how did he pull this off? How did he, how did it, it does raise an eyebrow or two. And I think the 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 orange van, I, I remember Matt Dalton, uh, I, Laura probably does, from he was originally on Mark Garagos's team, there was a falling out. He was sort of the attorney in Modesto out of the gate. And he came across this discovery of this orange van and he was glued into it. What's new here is that that has never been tested, that DNA. So this is it. If, if the... The Innocence Project's a request for discovery is allowed, which it should be. Um, they're, they've ticked off what they need to, to get the court's approval to go in and test these things. This is how it works. And this is how it should work as a society. Because, um, you know, the people that are interviewed walking out of prison, um, innocent, well, it starts with this kind of work. And so if at the end of the day, Lacey Peterson's blood is in that van, it's over. Right. So and the physical evidence does, believe it or not, tie in. It would work with an alternative theory because there is 
so little physical evidence. That said, yeah, he wises hair dye. Well, there's an excuse for everything. There's an explanation for everything. But when you start stacking them up, it's a come on, man kind of thing. And that's what the jury went on. That's how that's how this case has gone from the beginning. And the this is going to be, I think, the end one way or another. Uh, well, that's a good thing. Uh, Alicia Gallego is talking here about Mark Aragos, uh, and he is uh, in the headlines today, basically proclaiming his former client's innocence. He represented Scott Peterson. Wonder how much money Scott's family has donated to this chapter of the Innocence Project. It is weird because the the overarching Innocence Project, Barry Sheck and company, uh, you know, they try to exonerate um, wrongfully convicted. Uh, people in prison. Um, but it's weird that this like new entity sort of pops up. And I got to say to Lauren Ted, and they know this to be true, uh, the media generally just, ju- if you hear like LA Innocence Project, you assume it's 100% kosher and the media likes to jump on this stuff. I know Laura Engel and uh, Ted are the kind of reporters who are going to vet it a lot more closely. But um, Leisha here says, and I don't know if this is 100% factual, they paid Garagos $1 million for which he guaranteed Scott would be coming home. Never made it home, but uh, that is the job, of course, of criminal defense attorneys. So, Laura, just some of the things that stack up against uh, Scott Peterson, uh, according to these reports, and you would know this better than me, uh, the bodies of Lacey and her unborn son are soon recovered in the San Francisco Bay Area um, in April of 2003. Prosecutors say that Peterson already had sold his wife's car and turned their son's nursery Uh, into a storage room. And then even worse, this woman, Amber Fry, comes forward and tells investigators uh, and the media, it was a big thing, I think with Gloria Allred at the time, that she was romantically involved with Scott Peterson uh, and that he told her his wife was dead even before the bodies were recovered. How incriminating a piece of evidence is this? What kind of factor did uh, Amber Fry play in all this? Well, Amber Fry was huge. And, you know, when the tapes, the Amber tapes, as they were known during trial, when we listened to all of the phone calls that she recorded with the help of the Modesto Police Department, who set her up with this little recording device from Radio Shack, uh, she kept him on the line quite a bit. He didn't know he was being recorded. All of that played out in a courtroom. One very slight variation of that, of the information that he gave her when they started dating um, was that he said, my wife is gone. You know, this will be my first Christmas without my wife. He never said she was dead, but he just alluded to the fact that she was gone. So it gave Amber the impression that, you know, this is a, you know, this is a good looking guy. He's got a good job. My friends like him and we're going to go to a Christmas party and he likes my kid. And, you know, everything seemed to be clicking along pretty well for them in this, uh, you know, just really, I, I think, I think Ted that, uh, Pat Harris, I remember one of them, either Pat or Mark said that they'd only been on it really a handful of dates. It was this wasn't a long romance that had been going on and on. This was, you know, they, they'd been together. They had gone to a hotel together and they were seeing each other. Um, but the Amber Fry tapes were huge. The fact that, you know, when I was talking to Detective Bueller, uh, retired Detective Bueller the last few days, he said, all of it, all of it being said and done, you can't get past the fact of where the bodies washed up, where he said he went fishing. And remember, a forensic pathologist testified that Lacey's body had been in salt water for three to six months. That fits the timeline. Connor's body was expelled. And also, Lacey Peterson had three broken ribs. 
that she that the forensic pathologist said she had received at the time of her death. They weren't broken ribs from being in the bay. They were broken ribs at the time of her death. What does that mean? Detective Brocchini told me last year when I did a documentary on this case that he believed, we all we all know that it must have been, it seems to have been a soft kill, that it was a, a smothering or a strangling. And Brocchini actually physically, when I was talking to him, said, I think he went around the back of her. She was sitting on the edge of the bed. He got behind her. He did something to her. He held her down. And that's what he believes happened. And there was a lot of circumstantial evidence that led to that narrative, um, which just continued to snowball on and on and on throughout the evidence that was presented at trial. I mean, Laura, back in the day when you were covering this, you know, Ted said he sure seemed guilty to Ted. Did you feel the same way that this guy was guilty? The evidence didn't look good. Clarify. I, I thought he was guilty the first day I met him. Uh, then I badgered him uh, on a daily basis and um, still thought he did it. In fact, I remember after a press conference from the family, I went up to Brett Roach and said, Brett, why are you guys so behind Scott? And they were lockstep behind him 100%. They, they loved him, didn't think there was no way that he would um, be able to uh, do this. Then Amber Fry comes out and the world thinks he's guilty. To me, Amber Fry was a little bit of a, oh, well, maybe that's why he's acting so strange. He didn't want anyone to know mm -hmm. that he had this mistress because he's um, he's cheating on his eight-month pregnant wife and she's missing, and maybe that was it. So I've gone back and forth uh, a million times on this case. I've always felt that he's guilty, but I've always been bothered by it, and there's something missing. Like all of the things, yes, San Francisco Bay, that's the biggest piece of evidence. Why would he go fishing in this little boat that he's never been on and use that to dispose of his wife when he, you know, he works in the fertilizer business. He's out in the middle of nowhere in Modesto. It's a weird way to dispose of a body. And, and the defense has always said, well, the, the, the real killers, they, um, they saw that Scott, that was his alibi. And the alibi was announced day two of this investigation. It was very early on. And um, again, the the idea of someone else doing it and then taking the time and effort to transport a dead Lacey Peterson to frame Scott Peterson, now it's getting, uh, it's hard to get your head around. But where was the blood? Where was any fluid at all? There's, I mean, the, the um, his activities, the, that morning, then uh, he was gone. So all during the Christmas time, uh, Christmas day, he was gone. Starting at 10 a.m., Scott Peterson has an alibi because that's when he turned on his computer at the uh, workshop. It just seems like for a first timer, he pulled off a crazy murder inside his home, presumably with a pregnant woman. And everyone expels fluids when they're dead. Pregnant people, uh, more so, and, and not one bit of blood, DNA, nothing. Uh, that's you know one of the things that does make you pause. Yeah. Well, and there was, there were bud, there was some blood at the end of the bed on the duvet that tested for Scott Peterson. And Scott had said, remember, he said, oh, look, I've got cuts. He showed reporters the cuts. Maybe he showed them to you, Ted. Um, and you were one of the ones that got the got the interview, um, which kudos, because that was a hard interview to get, and Ted Rollins got one of them. And 
Brocchini said that he believes that when Lacey fought back, if, if, if his theory is true, that she scratched him. And the reason why there's specks of blood of from Scott at the end of the bed is because that's where he thinks it happened. He said, it's not like he cut himself shaving and there were blood droplets at the head of the bed where you would have maybe blood on a pillow if you cut yourself shaving. They were at the end of the bed and that's where he thinks something happened. That's his theory. Interesting. Uh, Moto 88 here. So this van is already, I think, very confusing to a lot of people. Uh, Moto 88. So there was DNA taken from a burned out van at the time of the murder, question mark. That seems odd. Why would there be DNA taken from a random burned out van on the street? I'm confused or I missed something. Ted, can you fill in the blanks here? There are two vans in question, right? Yeah. So this burned out van, the orange van, was found near the Modesto airport. And it was found on December 25th, reported. A fire investigator comes, and he is part of this filing from the L.A. Innocence Project. Um, and they process this van not knowing that there could be any association with Lacey Peterson. But the fire investigator says, we see blood. We see that it's been burned out. And we're hearing about this missing woman. And right away, the fire department says, hey, we should tell Modesto police about this van and what we have. They take photos, they deliver that information, they actually transport the van away from the media so the media wouldn't see it into uh, a forensic um, evidence area. They take the samples of the carpet and they do collect evidence, but they don't test for DNA. They don't test it moving on from there. So that's what the LA Innocence Project wants to do, is go in there and test this. And if you do read the declaration from this fire marshal, Years now, uh, he just he just filed this you know, or, or recited this um, last year. It's kind of chilling. He says, right away, I thought of that missing woman, and I have thought about it for a very long time. In fact, an investigator who used to be a journalist, Mike Gutchell with the ABC, he knocked on his door. And this is the only reason this has been uh, brought out. It was part of the original discovery, but they were black and white photos. This guy produces to this investigative journalist a color photo. And boom, now you see all the blood and it, it hits uh, a little different. Why wasn't that tested? And that, um, it, it, I know why, because they thought they had their guy, which is fine. At this point, test it. Why not? There's no reason not to test it, just to make sure. Because the 25th would be that day if they, they say that she was out on the 24th, there's that van. Okay, they kill a lady in the van, they burn the van. All right, that makes sense-ish. Probably not that, but test it. By the way, uh, Laura Engel, uh, she was going to come on the show this week for uh, the Michelle Traconis trial. She interviewed Fotis Dulos, so uh, I can't abuse her too badly, but hopefully next week uh, we'll get her on because we've been covering the Michelle Traconis trial. And she also knows a ton about that. Rula says she Rula's the one who said she hadn't heard of this case, but says it sounds like another Chris Watts. Meanwhile, uh, Scott is serving a life sentence without parole. Uh, for murdering his wife, uh, Lacey Peterson. He was uh, uh, sentenced to death, and then that was reversed, I think, in uh, 2020. Now, family members have come out. Lacey's cousin, a guy named Stan Bonds, and Lauren Ted are going to know a lot more about him than I do. But Stan Bonds just said in the last week or so about the L.A. Innocence Project, they're barking up the wrong tree, trying to get that criminal loose. Scott was a spoiled rich boy that got caught. And goes on to say at the candlelight vigil shortly after Lacey's death, uh, when he went to approach Scott to ask him some questions, uh, he finds him on the phone throughout the entire 
service. Uh, clearly, family members, Laura, you know, think he is guilty, uh, at least these sets of family members. I think his sister-in-law, his brother's wife, thinks he's completely innocent. But how, how surreal is it for you that you're getting calls from people like me 20 plus years later to cover this case? Did, you know, you probably thought it would go away once he was convicted, right? Well, I mean, we've talked about it a lot in recent years. A lot of us did the 20-year anniversary piece. So when it was 20 years, we said, let's mark the moment uh, when I was working at Fox and we did this documentary. And last year, I went to, let's see, I went to the Modesto neighborhood. I walked across the street to the Medinas. I interviewed Homer Maldonado, who is a neighbor uh, who lives in the neighborhood, who swears that he saw Lacey Peterson after Scott Peterson said he went fishing. There are many witnesses who say that, that, you know, they never could match with, with the reports and with the evidence. Uh, but nonetheless, and I went to the Point Isabel where the bodies washed ashore. I went to the Berkeley Marina. I took another, I wanted to see it again as we were doing this documentary, obviously. And I also went to San Diego where I interviewed Janie Peterson and went into her war room. I know she doesn't love that term, but it's, it, that's what it is. It's this room full of photos of every, of all the evidence and stickers with the time frame of when everybody saw something. And it's, you know, a lot of us talked about it at the 20-year mark, but this, this that's happening now, the LA Innocence Project, the orange van, the firefighter, it is shocking. And my phone has been, I, I took... <laughs> I took today off and I've been on the phone since very early this morning. And what I've been doing this morning is I've been on the phone trying to figure out what jurisdiction the alley is. And I've learned that it wasn't the Modesto Police Department. It was, and Bueller told me this, and then I called to verify, it was the Stanislaus County Sheriff's Office that deals with some of the unincorporated areas of Modesto. And the, and the airport district has, you know, you, you cross one street, you're in the Modesto Police Department territory, go across the street, you're in the county sheriff's. And that's what this area is, the airport district. It's not a great, dis, it's not a great area. It's not where you want to go take a walk. Um, but they, I, I said, is there a record of this fire investigation? Is there something that we can see publicly? I've made a records request and we'll see what happens. Um, but everybody is talking about it. And it's because the LA Innocence Project has brought this up. And I can't help but think about the case that we're covering here on Long Island, the Long Island serial killer. And it was a tip about a Chevy avalanche that wasn't followed up on that led us to a suspect who had been sought for years and years. Is this the Chevy avalanche of the Scott Peterson case? I don't know. I don't know until they test it. And I think, Ted, you're right. They just, they have to like, let's test it. Let's find out one way or the other because people want to know and and they deserve to know if this wasn't it, tested, get it tested. And what's the time frame, Ted, oh. do we know for the testing of this of this other van? I, I don't know, but I mean, it has to be approved. There has, um, basically there's a, a, a very large piece of this um, portion where there's blood staining that was cut out and this mattress. Um, and there are some other items I want to test. First, a trial court judge is going to have to be assigned. Judge DeLuke has passed away. He was the original one. And uh, Judge Mazzullo, who handled sort of that inquiry after the state Supreme Court looked into this case and Scott ended up being off death row. And they, you know, they looked into the juror, Rachel, um, Rochelle Neese. Um, that judge, she's been promoted. She's in San Francisco. I think they'll likely assign this to a San Mateo judge 
that judge will then make the decision, okay, we're going to give the discovery over to this uh, uh, innocence project or not, or they'll fight it out. So it's going to take some time, as uh, as you might think everything has taken us. This take 20 years to get here. Uh, they They did... This was part of the original discovery, so the prosecution knew about it. The this was forwarded to investigators. So you know, I I love Bueller just as so much as the next fella, um, and and uh, Brokini. But they 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 may not have remembered, but it was part of the, the part of it, and it was added into the discovery. The discovery that was forwarded to the defense originally. Again, it was a, it was a black and white photo, not a color photo, which. And they, well, it, it makes it a big difference because the blood just pops uh, when you see the, the photo now of the, that orange man. Well, uh, Michalina Kimmel, uh, my goodness, Connor would be 21 or 22 years old now. Uh, Jessica Souza, I live in the same town, Peterson, uh, Scott Peterson, and I have close friends of Lacey's uh, from all the evidence uh, he is guilty. So, again, back to the uh, Innocence Project here. They usually do come to the uh, defense of low-income uh, defendants. In this case, obviously, Scott Peterson is a man with means, as is, is his family. Um, they filed, as Ted said earlier, this lengthy motion back on January 17th. And the quote, the direct quote is, new evidence now supports Mr. Peterson's longstanding claim of innocence and raises many questions into who abducted and killed Lacey and Connor Peterson. Uh, Laura, I'm just wondering, you know, obviously uh, you're a reporter's reporter taking the day off and making calls about this all day. But are people telling you kind of off the record what's going on here? There's no way this guy is uh, is uh, innocent. This is just a, a wild goose chase. I would say, well, you've got it both ways. Those people that were close to the investigation and the friends and family, and I have not been able to get in touch with Sharon Rocha or family members. Um, I can only imagine how incredibly upsetting this is for them. I, I, I mean, we just hit, we just got through the 20 year anniversary. And as somebody who, you know, lived in this area and, and watched this all go down, I, I still think of Lacey Peterson every Christmas. I still, when I see the twinkly lights on the houses, I remember being in that neighborhood with the gumball lights and and the police there. You know, it's it's just, it's so hard to imagine that they're, after everything we've been through and watching this case unfold, that there could be a different outcome. With that being said, I, I can't speak for their that side of the family because I have not spoken to them, but I, I know how they feel because they've told us repeatedly through news conferences and other interviews. Um, but those who are close to the case on the investigative side, aside from the detectives I've spoken to, I've spoken to others, and they say, go ahead and test it because we don't think that you're going to find anything different than what all of the other evidence showed you. But you know, Mark Garagos, who's been on our air a lot on News Nation, uh, said is, you know, saying with his hands, like, I've been telling you people for years, he's innocent. You know, that uh, that's always what I've been saying, that something happened. It wasn't my, it wasn't this guy. He didn't do it. He is convinced. Pat Harris, I interviewed two years ago, convinced he didn't do it. Janie Peterson with the War Room, convinced he didn't do it. The public, forget it. You know, everybody that is on social media says that he did it. But it's just it's just one of those things where we have to take a second look, you know, you just have to. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Ted, there's this juror, Strawberry Shortcake. You're looking at her here. Uh, her real name is Rochelle Nice. Tell the uh, the viewers uh, who she is and how she factors into all this. 
Ted frees up there. Laura, you want to take that? Sure. So um, I've I've been in touch with her through the years and she's been through a lot. I will say, you know, this was this was not easy on any of the jurors that we have interviewed um, post trial and conviction and sentencing. Um, you know, it's not easy to put to to sentence a man to death. Um, but Rochelle Nice became a figure in this story when it was revealed that she herself had been abused while she was pregnant. And she didn't reveal that, which then, you know, Mark Garagos would say, the defense would say she was a stealth juror. She was somebody who didn't reveal, she wanted to be on the jury so she could get Scott um, because she didn't reveal what she had been through. She herself had been abused as a pregnant woman and she wanted to get on the jury. And that became an issue and it's become an appellate issue. It's been talked about for a long time uh, with all of this. Um, and there's been court decisions because of it. A lot of people have said, you know, the death penalty was overturned because of her. That's not the case. It was a separate issue. It was because jurors who in voir dire were asked if they supported the death penalty, some who said, I don't support the death penalty, question two, but can you get past it to move on to this case? And they said they could, and they were still excused. And because of that, that's the reason why the death penalty was overturned. But Rochelle has been a, a problem in the sense of many people said she should have revealed that. She said, I didn't think, she said in many interviews past uh, that she did not feel that the incident that she had with an ex-boyfriend when she was pregnant uh, made sense in her mind that that would be something that would equate to being a juror on this trial. And she just didn't mention it because she didn't think it was something that fell into the category of whatever it was, the exact question that was being asked. Yeah. Um, older Wiser says, I love that name, by the way, strawberry shortcake was out of control. That jury was totally out of control. One guy left the jury because another juror threatened to beat him to a pulp. Uh, she also later, uh, strawberry shortcake did. She wrote a book called we, the jury and, uh, was writing dozens of letters to Scott Peterson in prison. Ted Rollins, anything to add about, uh, the, another X factor in this case, which is, or who is strawberry shortcake? Well, yeah, but that was litigated and, um, they lost. So the, that this California Supreme court said, Hey, look into this. Cause there is, this is weird. Uh, she did lie on her application, but the judge assigned to it at the end of the day, after a multi-day hearing, I was at uh, last year, two years ago, I guess now, um, they, it was determined that yeah, she might have lied to get on the jury, but her issues with her ex did not influence this, and um, that's over. I mean, that, that they, the Petersons and, and um, the defense really thought this was their avenue to a new trial. And that's a mistake. You know, you're going after a new trial because of a mistake at your old trial. What's happening now is much different. Now he's going after a new trial because he's saying— uh, in essence, I didn't did it, do it, and I have uh, proof now of the person that did, uh, possibly. So it was compelling. And you know what? You, uh, Laura was talking about the, the families, and, and Sharon and Brett did come to that hearing. And it's amazing what they've had to go through. Um, and now this week it pops up again. This is the never-ending wound for that family. And um, the way they've handled it with um, such grace over the decades now is incredible i you know to laura's point i i also feel and think about this case and, and that family uh, a lot and laura to that point um i believe scott peterson's mother passed away a bunch of years ago but 
Lacey's mother is still alive. Um, I mean, I, forgive me if you mentioned it because I, I have a head cold, but do we know how she's doing today, how she's taking this news? Do we have any idea? I don't. I've reached out to her. I know that I have the right cell phone number and she hasn't responded to me. And I can't say that I blame her. I, you know, one of the things during the trial when we, I mean, I think what people have asked me repeatedly through the years, like, what is the thing that sticks out to you the most? And the, of course, the evidence and Amber Fry and being in the courtroom when they showed the autopsy photos, I will never get over. Uh, I will also never get over listening to her victim impact statement. I will never get over. I remember being in the courtroom and look, we're all, we're all human beings at the end of the day. And I remember sitting with my notepad, pen and paper, and I was writing and I didn't even realize it was happening, that tears were coming and hitting my page and my pen was running. I couldn't, I couldn't even write on the notepad her victim impact statement was so powerful, speaking to Scott as Lee, as Connor. Why are you killing me, Daddy? I mean, just, just the, what she went through and how she channeled her daughter and her grandson in that moment. I'm getting chills right now. Like it was, it was one of the most devastating things I have ever heard as a reporter, as a person. Um, how is she doing today? She's got all of that underneath and going through it still. And I don't, and I never ran up to her. There were reporters that ran up to Sharon Rosa every day. And I always said that I never, ever approached her during that trial. And maybe, you know, maybe it would have been a good sound bite. But I never needed to ask her how she felt because I could see it. Uh, very, very kind of you. There are reporters that don't know when to back off, and that sounds like a case. This is Scott Peterson today on the right. Uh, Ted Rollins, um, yeah, I don't want you to have to remark on a man's looks, but he doesn't look so bad for having been on death row and being in prison uh, for 20 years. Any idea what it's been like for him uh, to be confined, especially on death row for all those years? Well, um, you know, we've gotten updates over the years, uh, many of them through the family, and most recently when they did have these hearings, um, Lacey's uh, family was there, but also Scott's family. And um, there, the the story from the family is that uh, he has good days and bad days, and, but he is still hopeful. Uh, they have never wavered in their declaration of his innocence, and he has not either. And that, you know, you take that for what it's worth. Um, because there are lots of people incarcerated that maintain their innocence. But um, that's part of, in fact, the prongs of the Innocence Project. In order to get this testing, that is one of the prongs that the defendant in the case has always maintained his innocence. You, you wonder why, but it is uh, part of the, um, to go back and retest at this juncture in the proceedings. So um, he has that, he has that locked up. And um that's why there's a declaration from him in this latest filing where he in his own says, I never, I didn't do it. And um, I've always been innocent. But to answer your question, I think that both families have been tortured by this. And um, it's every, every family that has someone in prison uh, is in pain as well as, as the victims of crimes. It's just, it, it's amazing how the trickle effect hits uh, the innocent. And he's um, in he's in my own he's in I own California right now. He was moved uh, just outside of Sacramento, my hometown. Uh, he's on uh, at the Mule Creek State Prison, which is in kind of this um, 
gold rush kind of area, like old timey towns. And I know it well because I have family in the area. And so uh, I just drove by the prison on Christmas when I went home to see my family. And last year stood in front of Mule Creek State Prison and have had a couple of contacts with people inside. He has, uh, he's, definitely has good behavior. He has different access now that he's been moved. San Quentin was very different than what a state prison is, um, especially outside of Sacramento. So um, we know that, in, and if you go on the website for Mule Creek State Prison, I believe you can see, it, you won't see Scott Peterson, but you'll see the conditions of that prison. And there's videos of inmates in the exercise yard, and you could get kind of a feel of, of what his new environment is. And you see how pretty Lacey was with that bubbly smile. Um, just a horrific story, another horrific American story. Cindy Collins, Joel, please take his picture down. I guess I had it up uh, too long, this one saying, uh, still creepy looking. But back to Mark Garagos for a minute, Ted Rollins. Uh, he was asked if he thinks that Scott's going to get out of prison, and he said, I do. Uh, again, uh, he is at Mule Creek State Prison. I, be I believe either one of the Menendez brothers was there for a time, too. Um, he, Garagos goes on to say, I've always felt this way. You're talking to somebody who has been pilloried for the last 20 years for having the temerity to say that I think he's innocent, meaning Garagos saying he's innocent. Uh, he's not being paid now, as far as we know, Ted, by the family. Uh, why do you think he's out there in the media basically professing Scott's innocence right now what is the what's the upside for him um well he truly believes it i've talked to mark uh, many times and um you know defense attorneys are quick to say eh, i don't know if he did it or not but um when they're talking about a client Gary goes is all in on this and so is pat harris and it, that's another one of those pause moments of why i mean he's got so many other clients he's done uh, but this is one of those cases where they didn't think that the evidence was there. They were on a huge stage and they lost. So that is a, a factor here, I'm sure, because I'm sure he thinks professionally, all right, I've been saying he's innocent. Uh, if at the end of the day he is, then um, it, it, it you know would reflect well on him. But there's a, he hasn't wavered at all um, about his belief in Scott Peterson, of all people. Uh, shout out, by the way. Go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead, Laura. No, no, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask, I wanted to ask Ted a question. Do we know why this orange van? I mean, I'm just going back and rewinding. Look, it's a long time ago. Why didn't, why didn't Mark bring up the orange van at trial or in any news conference? Or did he? Um, so I'm switching. Hold on. <laughs> my, my, my computer died. Oh, oh there he man. Goes. Uh, he'll come back. He'll come back. Uh, that's a great, then, great question. Uh, Laura, well, speaking of point to the firefighter really quickly, yeah. what I yeah. want to know from the firefighter that hopefully I'll, I'll have a chance to ask this question is if you think that if you're the firefighter and you investigated the fire and you put it in a report and you're like, wow, there's, there's a, I mean, we were in Modesto, the world stopped the whole world. It felt like stopped during the Lacey Peterson case. We lived it. And I don't know. I don't understand why somebody who might know something wouldn't be in the Modesto Police Department pounding on the counter saying, you got to look at this. There's something there. I can't understand if this I just don't understand why that didn't happen. And I'm just wondering, Ted, if you remember, we talked a lot about the brown van and the three guys and then the two guys, two separate incidents. There was, you know, um, 
Todd, and then there was the other guy, those burglars, and then there were, thank you. And then there was the three guys with the van that was tan and it was white and it was brown, but this is different. This is a different van. And I'm just wondering if you remember why this wasn't brought up uh, by anybody that publicly that I can remember. Yeah, I mean, the, the only knowledge I had of it was a conversation I had with Matt Dalton, one of the Garagos' team members early on. And that was early on, and then it just sort of faded away. And the story that I'm getting now is that the this investigator was the person that was shocked by it, it put it, you know, uh, uh, gave it to the original team, investigative team, and it got lost in the shovel with all the other tips, if you will. But this was a fire investigator, gave it up. It didn't follow up because he figured out they have they have what I have. But again, Mike Gutchell, he's this he used to be an ABC producer, covered this case um, along with Laura and I. He has he's like a private investigator, investigative journalist now, and he won't let this die either. And uh, so he tracked down this fire investigator, went to his home, and according to Mike, this guy opened the door and, and found out what was going on, and he said, I've been waiting years for somebody to ask me about this van. So, I again, to me, from my standpoint, I love somebody that he thinks OJ's innocent, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, people hate me, and I love it. Uh, but because all I'm asking, all I'm doing is looking at the facts and, the you know, what's true and what's not. But, um test it so they have it now it's come out 20 years later so what it's a why i guess it, it, it fell through the cracks maybe no one's to blame here test it and let's move on one way or another here's a really popular comment from m christine scott peterson is innocent in my opinion he was misjudged by law enforcement the media and society because he is neurodivergent uh, that is an interesting take but laura back to this van for another moment um so the L.A. Innocence Project say that uh, for the first time, uh, they're going to test this cloth from a bloodstained mattress recovered from the back of this orange van that was parked near the couple's house. Do we know who's actually doing the testing? Is that even important? Well, we don't, because I believe if I read the document right, it's the L.A. Innocence Project asking for somebody to test it. I don't know who that would be assigned to, uh, what kind of forensic lab in Northern California that would go to. Maybe that will be decided once the whole issue is decided. Um, is that so, right? I think, and a, and a judge ultimately would make that decision because they would want um, it right. to be wide open and um, there would have to be parameters involved in, in all of that. So to be right. determined. Yeah, I just cannot imagine. Ted, have you tried to get a hold of Lacey's mother? Have you have you reached no, out? No, I have not. Um, I, I, again, I, I saw her last year, and um, she's a it's a wonderful family. Ron Gransky has passed away, um, but um, she is still alive and um, has been through so much. I mean, imagine losing a daughter and uh, losing a pregnant daughter. They were so excited, uh, and this has never gone away. And for this, for a victim's family, it's the worst case scenario. It just keeps bubbling up. Uh, from Annie K to Laura, since this evidence is 21 years old, how can the purity, chain of command, et cetera, be assured? What about that? I mean, testing 21 years later, the science has obviously improved uh, a tremendous amount. But do you have any concerns about the integrity of the testing? As far as I know, all evidence has been you know, well taken care of. Again, we haven't heard about this. And I 
I haven't seen you pull it up, Joel, but I just want to show, I don't know if, this is mm. the van that we're talking about, just for reference. Thank you. Thank you. So here's here's the van. And, and to Ted's point, I didn't know that this was only in black and white all those years ago, and now we have it in color. So So here's the van. And then the inside of the van, the interior looks like this. Creepy if you looking, can see that. Yeah. Um, yeah. it's super burned out. And then the, and I don't know, I mean, is, is this blood? Is it a, is it a striped pillow? This is the, this is what's inside of the van that they want to have tested. So mm -hmm. when they, when the innocence, Pro the LA innocence project put forth this request, they said they wanted cloth from the mattress. They wanted something from the fuel tank. So they have very specific requests about this van which leads us to believe that whatever evidence it is they're talking about has been preserved in some way. Let's hope that it's somewhere, you know, clearly marked and, and logged and, and only time will tell on that. Uh, Cora Savage here with a super sticker, whether Scott Peterson is guilty or not, I'm not sure, but I think that he was convicted in the court of public opinion long before he went to trial press conferences about Amber Fry and so on. Therefore, I don't think he got, a fair trial. Uh, Ted Rollins, you know, we've been talking about this on the show. Um, it seems like modern day with social media, there is uh, somewhat of a presumption of guilt in this country, not innocence. Is this problematic now? Does she make a point here, do you think? Yeah, the amount of coverage was incredible. I, I think the, a mistake was made with the change of venue. It should have gone to Los Angeles because San Mateo County is so close to Modesto that the Bay Area was very familiar with this case. Um, and, you know, during this strawberry shortcake investigation, it, you know, came out that people did know about it. And, and during Vaudeer, you, know, you heard it, people knew about it. As far as now, I mean, yeah, the, we, it's insane the amount of issues that jurors are having. You talk about uh, the Traconis case. Um, you know, juror was bounced off because they were on social media. And uh, then they come back and say, this is just like Gone Girl to the other <laughs> members of the jury. And like, oh, my gosh, really? You? I mean, that's that's ignoring everything the judge is saying in terms of the admonitions. You have to stay off social media, et cetera, et cetera. I think when someone gets a jury notification, they're on their phone. I would. And uh, and you'd go to the courthouse knowing what potentially it is. And then I just I think we're in a different um world that we were in even 10 years ago uh, and your point's absolutely right on joel that people are you better be you better have some ammunition before you go to trial because people are walking in there thinking you're guilty yeah and uh right. scott peterson that was obviously well before twitter and instagram and all that stuff um i'm sure i can find it laura but if you want to make my job easier and you want to send me those photos i'll put them up on uh instagram at surviving the survivor uh, go ahead laura and and to your point about about social media and everybody, I mean, think about and you just talked about the Jennifer Dulos case. We saw surveillance of footage from the neighbors of the car going into her driveway and coming out. Just think if just one person had a ring camera, obviously they weren't around back then. But we have repeatedly said, what about the gas station down the street? What about any of the businesses? I mean, as, and I don't know. As far as I know, there's no footage. There is footage, I think, over near the Berkeley Marina more, but but just the Modesto neighborhood, just up and down the street. Nowadays, you can't walk up and down the street without being picked up by a ring camera. And I just keep thinking about God, 
just the timing. I, yeah. I, I wish that somebody had a surveillance camera. And to that point, Laura, I think if, if there were cameras in the neighborhood, one of two things happens. Um, Scott's never even arrested someone else's and or he doesn't do it. Right. He's that's another factor. If he did, right, he would know this is a calculating person and a smart person. Uh, I think Lace is alive either way. Uh, from PSS, super sticker here, court of public opinion uh, being reasoned for not getting a fair trial. You could say that about every modern day trial. How about fleeing? Circumstantial evidence is why he was convicted. Thank you. Next, Scott, uh, to this comment from Space Coast on the West Coast, who handles all the tech issues. How long before Joel realizes the difference between a super sticker and a super chat? I honestly have no idea. What the hell is the difference? Someone let me know. I have no idea at all. Uh, Laura Engel, back to this for a minute. So we were bringing up this Modesto fire investigator. His name is Brian Spitalski, and then we're going to start to wrap up because uh, my voice ain't going to hold up. Um, so he is a former fire fire investigator with the Modesto Fire Department. He came out and told ABC News uh, the van was found on Christmas Day 2002, the day after Lacey Peterson vanished in this alley. Uh, but he says it's much more than just a burned out vehicle. And here's the quote. It made it like this was much more important than just a burned vehicle that somebody was just wanting to get rid of or cover up for a simple crime and goes on to say, I don't have an agenda or an opinion on Scott's guilt or his innocent. This is for me, a fire investigation in a vehicle that has blood, possible blood on the mattress. And that right there is important. Uh, this has always been one of those things that kind of sits in the back of your head and kind of bugs you a little bit. And you kind of wonder why this didn't happen or why it wasn't brought up. Laura Engel, uh, do you think this guy Spitalski is being honest that he has no agenda and he's just coming forward because it has been bothering him this whole time? What do you think? Well, I've been trying to talk to Brian. I have been texting with Brian and his attorneys, and we are trying to get to the bottom of that because I think the question, and it should be answered, is if this was filed and investigated, I just don't understand why you know, anybody didn't go into the Modesto Police Department and say, by the way, be sure to look at the fire because I'm not hearing about the fire. You, you're listening to the trial coverage and I'm not blaming him because to Ted's point, you know, he filed a report. They did an investigation. They thought, you know, th that would make sense. But if you're if you're watching the trial and everybody was at the time, especially if you're living in Modesto, I don't know why somebody why it didn't come up in a different way. But it will be interesting to hear more from Brian, and I think that we will. Um, he could be called to testify or, you know, give a statement. We'll see. Um, but we all have a lot of questions for Brian, the firefighter. Hmm. And, and Laura, right back to you on this. So this is Mark Garagos, and he's talking about you and Ted and others. He says, the problem with that is you talk to any reporter who was there covering the case back then on December 26th on that street, which is not exactly a thoroughfare. It was inundated with press who had camped out there. Do you really want us to believe that that burglary happened with all of the nation's press corps sitting 25 feet away? So he's implying it happened earlier. What do you make of that comment? He's basically saying there's no way there could have been a burglary after the fact because you guys were all there. Well, Ted was there before I was, and there are photos of Covina Avenue in the hours and days 
after, like like Christmas. And I don't know if it was inundated right away. And Ted, you were there before I was, but I've seen photos of the street where there it's not inundated. When I got there, it was inundated. So Ted can speak more to the initial first days. The twenty sixth. Yeah, on the twenty the morning of the twenty sixth, I was the only one there. Um, so there was this was just mm-hmm. starting to come up. So and, and I've been um, the target of a lot of people on this one because I don't remember seeing anybody. And and Laura knows if you're covering and missing someone anywhere and it's seven in the morning and it's the day after Christmas, anything, a, you know, a cat, you're going to run up and try to interview to get to a sense of who this missing person is. And so the the idea that a robbery was going on right under my nose, possibly. Uh, but I didn't see anything, and that's all I, you know, I, I did not see anything. And Mark believes that there were, you know, tons of people there. There weren't. It was early in the morning. I mean, they didn't commit this robbery in broad daylight. It was in the overnight early morning hours. And in the early morning hours, it was me, my photographer, uh, and that, that was it. And we did park down the street so that we didn't bother uh, the neighbors at the, you know, from 5 a.m. till about 7. That's when we moved up. And that's when I, you know, talked to Scott. Uh, and you, were gallery. The, you were closer to the park? Yeah, right near the park because there's a little area there where there are no houses uh, on the one side of the street. And uh, so we parked there. We could see the Peterson house, but uh, we were away so that our, that our generator wouldn't make noise. Is Lacey's family still in that area, Laura? Is Lacey's family still there? I believe so. I believe, if I remember right, that Brent Rocha is in the Sacramento area, Elk Grove area. Uh, I believe. I believe that Sharon might still be doing real estate in Modesto, but but I haven't talked to her, so I'm not sure. I could tell you that last year I knocked on the door of 523, um, and it was a very nice man who I spoke to, and I, it was the first time I actually had been that close to that front picture window. And uh, it's a nice family that lives there now. But as far as Lacey's family, to your question, I, I don't know. Maybe Ted knows more on that. Yeah, that's always uh, the door knock, the infamous door knock, always uh, a strange thing for reporters. But uh, Peanut Gallery here says Scott's half-sister, Ann Bird, knew him well. She said he acted like a bachelor on the prowl and was acting very strange, followed by uh, Gemma McDonald. Uh, yeah, he also used rental cars to make several trips to the Bay to watch the exact area he dumped Lacey, not suspicious at all, obviously sarcastic. A couple more very quick things, and then I promise we're wrapping up. Janie Peterson, Ted Rollins, what do we need to know about her? She is uh, Scott's sister-in-law, married to his brother. Uh, she's obviously maintained uh, his innocence and also believes that this burglary happened across the street, uh, may have something to do with it. Is her word credible? Is she someone that we should listen to? Uh, yeah, she's a very intelligent individual. She went and got her law degree, passed the California bar, which is very difficult to do. She will debate you until you are um, out of questions in terms of Scott's innocence and has an answer for everything. And again, the, every single one of the explanations for the things that he did, like the things that uh, people are bringing up, there's an explanation or, oh, you can't convict someone for that type of behavior. I mean, he he rented the porn channel. Like, he upgraded his porn channel to, like, a hardcore porn during her, her, during her disappearance. Uh, just that his behavior is what got him convicted. And the Petersons and Janie specifically say, great, yeah, 
he acted like a complete moron. He, but where's the proof? Proof. So um, she's something you sh- you would you should absolutely listen to if you're open minded. In this case, it triggers so many people that um, they don't want to mm-hmm. hear anymore. Uh, final piece of uh, information I just want to cover, and then we'll get final thoughts. Uh, so Laura, um, lawyers for this sort of nebulous LA innocence project that we don't uh, seem to know much about. Uh, they're also looking for evidence that they say that they were unable to find in Scott's trial files um, that basically they're accusing the state way back when of uh, late breaking discovery uh, and not turning over uh, evidence the way they should have. Uh, this goes back 21 years. Do you think that's going to be an issue that they're going to be able to go back and say, hey, you didn't hand this over 21 years ago? This was a problem. I mean, only the people who have that information know. But if I if I may, because yes. I just was I was just in her war room. I just want to show you. And I, I should have texted you these, but like this is inside. Good. This is inside the war room. This is the type of bulletin boards that she has. I don't know if you can see them. I'll try and get it without the glare. Um, timeline photos. Who is it? Who is this now? I'm sorry. Who is this? Janie Peterson okay. has a room in her family's business wow. that has, you know, it's just, it's very, it's, it's almost like the movies. It's, it's a huge, huge set of bulletin boards that they have created that has the times and the evidence and goes over every single thing that happened. Here's Janie and I talking in front of one of the boards, looking at the evidence that's on the cork boards and the timelines. And mm-hmm. she has, like Ted said, she has an answer for everything, everything. Wow. Um, but she also has bank boxes that are full of documents, full of documents. This is in her war room. This is files and files and boxes and boxes of all of the court documents and reports of this case. So does anybody have it? She might. Wow. Wow. That's really kind of fascinating. A little creepy too, but fascinating that she has all that. Um, And here's, and and so if you look at this picture, if you look at this picture, anything that has a pink border is something that Lacey did. Anything that has a blue border is something that Scott did on the day in question. So you can follow the timeline visually in this war room. I'll send you these pictures and we can do Yeah, I'll post them on uh, Instagram at Surviving the Survivor. Uh, Right now, Peterson is guilty until proven innocent. Interesting. Uh, Before joining Court TV, Ted Rollins, who is a mensch of a man, he worked for over 20 years as a correspondent for CNN and ABC News. He's covered all these big uh, cases. O.J. Simpson, Michael Jackson, Jody Arias, Scott Peterson, which we talked about today, Robert Blake, Phil Spector. Now he's on Court TV with my man Vinny Politan. And uh, Ted, your final uh, your final thoughts on all this? Do you think we finally get some sort of closure on this case? And if so, when? Uh, when? Great question. Not sure. Um, yes. The uh, after this is exhausted, I think there'll be closure one way or another. And it's not just the mattress that they want to test. There's a bunch of things that they've gone through and identified. They're doing, uh, you know, fresh eyes kind of thing all in on this investigation. But at the end of it, there'll be one more habeas that is 
filed on Scott's, well, at least another habeas filed on Scott's behalf, pointing out what they found. And uh, at that point, it should, I mean, let's face it, if Lacey Peterson's DNA is anywhere in this van, all right, it's, let's, it's, it's over, right? Scott, uh, uh, she's not in this van, so she's, um, Scott's innocent. It's a huge long shot. And uh, I expect at the end of the day, Scott will spend the rest of his life uh, in prison. Um, but we'll have to wait and see. And, and anyone who doesn't want or doesn't think that the process should allow itself to play out, um, shame on you, uh, because uh, the worst thing in the world is an innocent man spending this amount of time and the rest of his life. Yeah. Uh, well said. So if you're sending me hate mail, I'm going to forward that on to Ted so he can respond. Uh, Dwayne Harris from Detroit, friend of the show, just gifting 10 memberships. Thank you to uh, Dwayne Harris. Laura Ingle, currently a crime reporter for Fox uh, for News Nation, excuse me, based in New York City. But she was with Fox for 20 years prior to that. And of course, KFI, which is how she got to covering this case. Uh, Laura, thank you for coming on. We need to get you on to talk photos Dulos as well, but uh, as it pertains to this, do you think or do you agree with Ted that one way or the other we're going to get closure and any guess as to how long this might take to resolve? I agree with Ted that this needs to be tested. I, I agree that everything in the Innocence Project, you know, not every, you know, it's a long document, but it needs to have a second set of eyes because of the advancement of DNA technology that we talk about all the time on these many stories that we cover. Um, it may take a while, but maybe we'll have it by the end of the year. I mean, I can't imagine that this would be held up for years and years. It, Hopefully, this will be something that will be turned around relatively quickly, or at least to have the okay, where the courts will give the okay and a judge will decide how and when this can be tested. Two things in closing. We still don't know how she was killed, exactly where she was killed, and exactly when she was killed. Three really big questions. But she was, you know, so and, and the family, Lacey's family, I go back to my heart is with them. When I cover these cases, it is so hard knowing that we're talking about a loved one in this way. It is horrible, but we want the truth to come out. And if the truth comes out one way or the other with this retesting of evidence, so be it. And to Ted's point, you know, we don't want somebody sitting in prison for something they didn't do. Let's see what happens. This could be a red herring. It could not be. The only way to know is to test it and find out. And uh, time will tell. But uh, to echo Laura's sentiments, we are with uh, Lacey's family. I uh, hope they are finding some comfort and peace all these years later. Uh, Vicky says, thanks, Joel. Best guest, CEOE, Space Coast, Mods, Meve Moen. Uh, it takes a team effort to put this all together. Love you, America. Full coverage of the Shelter Conus trial tomorrow. We're looking to do a show about that. Uh, 5 p.m. right after the trial concludes. And again, hopefully Laura will come on to discuss her uh, insight into that case. Uh, until then, we'll love you, Atlanta, Georgia. Love you, New York, New York. And uh, tonight, Modesto. Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, Get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, 
Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system, or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks. 